Section 12, comprised of chapters 34, 35, and 36 of Life and Adventures of Frank and Jesse James by J.A. Dacus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P.J. Landau. Chapter 34, A Dream of Love. Frank James cherishes tender sentiments and goes a-wooing. A fair girl, beautiful and accomplished, Frank's suit encouraged. Quote, Fancies bright as flowers of Eden, often to his spirit come, winging through the mind's brief sunlight, glad as swallows flying home. Love is the true heart's religion, let us not its power deny. But love on as flowers love sunshine, or the happy birds the sky. End quote. Frank James was an outlaw. The smooth-faced, beardless youth who came from the school where he had pondered over the thoughts of Euripides, who had all Greece for a monument, to unite his fortune and venture his fate with Quantrell's band, had become a man, bearded and strong, daring and dangerous to his fellow men. And the sprightly intellect that enabled him to lead his class, and the youthful ardor which had conjured up classic forms among the sacred relics of almighty Rome, as his mental vision was turned back through the vista of many departed centuries, were now floundering in the muddy pools and reveling in plots and schemes, sordid and debasing. He was not old in years, and yet he was ripe in experience. Year after year had chased each other down the steeps of time since Frank James became a soldier of the highways, a participant in the well-planned ambushment and an executioner in the sudden surprise and fatal catastrophe to the enemy who came into the well-planned ambuscade, and he had witnessed unmoved the agony of victims when shaken by the throes of death. Could this man, whose hands were red with the crimson stains left there by the blood of victims, whose mind was made harsh and hard by years of struggle against organized society, whose conscience must have become seared by the long contact with the rude, rough elements in human nature, whose heart must have become callous by reason of the cruel scenes through which he had passed. Could such a one have tender dreams of love? And yet we might ask, why not? The tender affinities of affection, which sprang from psychological causes, is one of the most beneficent schemes of God's benevolence, which traverses all space in its flights, and lives the visible token of man's divinity on earth and his hope in heaven. The hand that would thwart them would interrupt the course of laws based on eternal verities. The fact is, neither time, space, conditions, nor the recognized canons of social life can induce or hinder the inception, growth, or maturity of a passion, which is acknowledged to be the most potent of all to which man is subject. Why, then, should Frank James not be smitten? In his wanderings he had met many fair ones, and beauty had smiled on him. But he knew that they were unacquainted with his name and antecedents, and so he refused to be led captive by these, whose love might turn to hate when they knew all. It is said that those who know Frank James, that he is endowed with a very superior mind, that his education is very good, that he is able to read the classics, and can converse fluently in both the German and Spanish languages. With these accomplishments, he possesses a handsome person and agreeable features. 
In conversation he speaks in a soft, low tone of voice, and in private life among his friends his manners are pleasing and well calculated to produce a favorable impression. Frank has been about the world a great deal, and has mingled in refined society not a little. It is his custom to visit New York almost every season, and sometimes he goes to Saratoga, Newport, and Long Branch. Friends of Frank assume that he is in many respects a superior man to Jesse, that he has more principle, and that there is far less of the desperado in his composition. He is cool, cautious, shrewd, and more manly than the other, and is not so reckless nor so revengeful in disposition. Frank James was susceptible to the blandishments of the fair sex in the days of his youth. In Kentucky he came near being caught in the silken meshes spread by a beautiful young lady of the bluegrass country who had come to regard him as a hero, whose adventurous career she longed to share. But fate interposed for her sake, or against him. Frank found it in his interest to take his departure from Kentucky, and it was not convenient for him to return for two whole years. In the interim, another gallant was attracted to her side, and eventually won her affections, and the young lady was married. A story is told by persons who claim to know much of Frank James's private affairs about a love affair between that redoubtable outlaw and an heiress in New York. She was beautiful and accomplished, and when she met the handsome and gentlemanly outlaw, who was not known in that character to her, she conceived an admiration for him which was fast ripening into affection. They rode together through the parks and were soothed by the music of the waves when the twilight and shadows fell as together they strolled along the lonely shore. But circumstances over which she had no control summoned her away from the side of the western adventurer and they never met again. So the years passed away, and Frank James found one being long ago who inspired his heart with tenderer dreams of love than any which had ever come to him before. For years the fair face, with its shadings of glossy brown hair and eyes of deepest azure, glancing from beneath their long silken lashes, was imprinted on his mind and shrined in his heart. Frank James had met her many times, and no more touching story of a woman's devotion has yet been told than that of the attachment of pretty Annie Ralston for Frank James, the bold border bandit. In time to come, the writers of the romance of the period covered by the career of the James boys will recall the name of the fair girl who became the outlaw's bride and weave around it the choicest flowers of literature. Chapter 35. Fair Annie Ralston, the Outlaw's Bride. How Annie Ralston carried off the honors of her class at college, a bell in society, her admiration for Frank James. She quietly collects her effects and leaves her home to share his fate with Frank. Quote, the loves and hopes of youthful hours, though buried in oblivion deep, like hidden threads in woven flowers upon life's web will start from sleep and one loved face we sometimes find pictured there with memories rife a part of that mysterious mind which forms the endless warp of life End quote. there are many people about the old town of independence 
who cherish pleasant memories of fair Annie Ralston. There are many who knew and loved her long ago, who will not soon forget the beautiful face of the outlaw's bride. And long after, those who knew her in the halcyon days of her innocent girlhood shall have passed to the quiet repose beneath the sod in the silent cities of the dead. Her story will be repeated. Many a romance has been based on incidents in lives far less dramatic than has fallen to the fortune or the fate of Annie Ralston. The years which have rolled their cycles round to swell the measure of the greedy past have not been so many that they have swallowed up the memories which cluster around the name of the gentle Annie and bring sighs to the lips of those who but a few short winters ago conned with her the lessons of the sages from the dreary pages of textbooks when they were schoolmates. People are not all ossified, brain, sense, and heart, because God's commentary on his written revelation was given first, was handed down from a thousand Sinai's and strewed in green and golden shadowy lines through all the ages. It yet lives and is from under his own hand, above, around, beneath us, and by it we may understand that holy mystery, how God is love and love is godlike. And we feel and know that never again to us from out the shade of the years can ministers of grace or glad ideals come, except through such sweet enchantment. Who, then, will condemn gentle Annie Ralston, the pet of the class, the warm friend, the glad-hearted girl, if she proved at last to be, like all her sisters, human? What circumstances conspired to induce her to become an outlaw's bride? If we could answer all the questions which might be asked concerning the emotions of the heart, the freaks of the mind, and other phenomena of human nature, and the structure of society, then might we be able to answer why fair Annie Ralston became the wife of Frank James, the proscribed enemy of society. But we cannot engage in such an undertaking. Her story is brief but full of interest. Before the period of blighting war, which swept like a destructive tornado over the fairest portions of western Missouri, Annie's father, Mr. Ralston, was a wealthy man, and his home was one of the most pleasant to be found in the vicinity of independence. He was a gentleman of culture and refinement, and his wealth gave him leisure to cultivate all the social graces. His hospitality was unbounded, and no man was more esteemed than Samuel Ralston. Annie was a wee girl when the thunder peal of war burst in all its lurid terrors all around and about her. It was no period of sentimental dreaming, and she was early accustomed to see and hear of bloodshed and devastation. She must necessarily have grown familiar with scenes which, under ordinary circumstances, would have excited her terror, and she had learned to look unmoved on the bloody corpse of the battle's victim. But no storm can continue forever, after the convulsion comes quiet, after the night dawns the day. So, at last, the war cloud rolled away. Then commenced the work of collecting fragments of wrecked fortunes and rebuilding waste places. But some wrecks were complete, and no fragments remained. In a large measure, this was the case with the life bark in which Mr. Ralston sailed down the river of time. Annie grew with the passing years, and stood, as it were, 
with reluctant feet on the boundary where childhood and womanhood meet. The residence of Mr. Ralston was convenient to the Independence Female College, and Annie became a student in that institution. She possessed excellent intellectual gifts, and in her course of study she led her classes. In due time the prescribed course of mental training was completed, and at commencement fair Annie carried away the highest honors of her class. She was now a young lady, accomplished in all the learning of the school. She sang delightfully, and could touch and cause to thrill with deepest harmony the chords of the harp and other instruments. She was a favorite in society at once. And Annie Ralston was handsome, almost beautiful. Her complexion was fair and soft, her features regular and pleasing, her eyes were large and azure blue, and these soulful orbs looked out from curtains of long silken lashes of deep brown that lent a charm to her expression, and her long brown tresses well completed this charming picture. And she possessed a symmetry of form and a gracefulness of carriage which might well attract the admiration of those who knew her. But there came a time when a shadow fell athwart her pathway and eclipsed this star in the social firmament. Annie's father had been ardent in his attachment to the Southern cause, and all who had contended in behalf of that cause were ever welcome to the hospitality of his home. He had suffered much from the consequences of the war, and perhaps more from the genial convivialities in which he indulged, and which had extended beyond the bounds of propriety. Frank and Jesse James, with their confederates, became frequent visitors at the Ralston home. People saw them there often, and it was whispered softly at first, but shouted aloud later that pretty Annie Ralston was an attraction for the outlaws, and received from them without rebuke their openly expressed admiration, and then her social star paled and finally went out. Frank James became to her a hero worthy of her love, nay, her heart's deep adoration. She waited with impatience his coming, and when he was away, and she thought of the hazards which he might make, and the destruction which might overtake him, she grew faint through apprehension. To her, he was assiduous and gentle and kind, whatever might be his disposition toward others, and she gave her heart to him long before an opportunity was presented to her to yield to him her hand. One bright day in 1875, some friends who had known pretty Annie Ralston from the days of her childhood met her at the Union Depot, Kansas City, with many valises and traveling bags in charge. Would she go up in town? Could they render her any service? Were questions which were asked. No, at another time she would go uptown. There was nothing they could do for her. Soon she was joined by her outlawed lover. Together they took a train and proceeded to Leavenworth, Kansas, where the vows which they had made to each other were renewed and sealed by legal authority and fair Annie Ralston became the outlaw's bride, and with him she journeyed toward the yellow southern sea, where the sunlight is warm and the breezes balmy. It was a sacrifice to thus banish herself from that society in which she was so well fitted to shine as one of its brightest ornaments. It was a trial to surrender up the friends and associates of her girlhood, to bid adieu to those who were near and dear to her, 
It was heroic to cast herself upon the care of the man she loved. On the altar of her affection, therefore, she placed all the idols of her youth, and in her devotion she proceeded to dig a wide, deep grave in which to bury forever the images which she had cherished. And so Annie Ralston became an outlaw's wife. Chapter 36. A $17,000 Hall. The Train Robbery at Otterville. The Youngers and the Jameses. Frank James the Planner. How the Train Was Halted. Capture of Hobbs Carey. He Gives Away the Gang. The Escape. It had been some weeks since the people of the West had enjoyed a sensation growing out of the robbery of a train or the plundering of a bank. Frank and Jesse James and Cole and Jim and Bob Younger, with their merry companions, had been unusually quiet for quite a long season for these restless rovers and adroit plunderers. The gang was increasing in numbers and was now really formidable. Others as daring had joined themselves to the noted outlaws, the Jameses and the Youngers. Cal Carter from Texas and Clell Miller and Bill Chadwell, Charles Pitts and Sam Bass and Bill Longley and the Hardens and the Moors of the Indian Territory and Texas divisions of the Klan were frequently with Frank and Jesse James and the Younger Brothers. In the gang, but apparently merely as a subaltern, whose principal employment was to hold the horses of the chief robbers when business required them to dismount, was a young fellow who went by the name of Hobbs Carey. Before Otterville, the protestations and denials of the Jameses and the Youngers were accepted by many good citizens, and there were numbers of very honorable persons who believed sincerely that these men were sadly slandered. The express robbery at Rocky Cut near Otterville served to remove the scales from the eyes of numbers of these good people, and Frank and Jesse James and the three youngers were revealed before the public as most dangerous highwaymen. The principals in the Otterville affair were Frank James, his brother Jesse, Cole Younger, and his brother Bob, Clell Miller, Charlie Pitts, Bill Chadwell, and Hobbs Carey. These men concerted the project in southwest Missouri in the lead mining districts. Frequent interviews took place between Frank and Jesse James and Cole and Bob Younger in regard to the feasibility of the undertaking. The Jameses were the original suggestors of the enterprise, and from what information we have been able to gather, the Youngers did not at first entertain the suggestion favorably. Indeed, it was some time before it was finally agreed that the attempt should be made. Then the bandits discussed the route to be taken and the place to be selected for the scene of this notable robbery on the Iron Highway. All these were settled in due time, and everything was ready to carry out their well-matured plan. Jesse James was the leader, the others merely acting in concert with him and taking their places in accordance with his suggestions. The expedition left the scene of their plotting about the first day of July, 1876. Before leaving, the band separated into two parties. Jesse and Frank James, Bill Chadwell, and Bob Younger composed one, and Cole Younger, Charlie Pitts, Clell Miller, and Hobbs Carey made up the other. The journey through the country was made leisurely enough. The two parties traveled by different routes and had no difficulty in securing lodging places. Sometimes they traveled in the night, 
to make the distance to the house of a friend in good time the next day. On Sunday, July 3rd, there were four of the bandits at Duval's house. Tuesday, a part of the band were in California, and after lingering about the place for a part of the day, they mounted their horses and rode to a house four miles north of the town, where four others of the robbers were stopping. A heavy rain came on that night, and so the robbers stayed nearly all of the day on the 5th and remained during the night. There is no evidence that the people where they stayed had any knowledge of the character of the persons whom they received under their roof. However, Jesse James and Cole Younger were acquainted with the gentlemen, but not under their names. On the morning of the 6th, the raiders mounted their horses and rode west in pairs. The James boys traveled together. Clell Miller and Hobbs Carey rode by each other. Charlie Pitts and Coleman Younger formed a pair, and Bill Chadwell and Bob Younger followed another route in company. These all traveled different roads. The place of meeting previously agreed upon was a spot about two miles east from the bridge across the Lamine River, and the time appointed was at three o'clock Friday evening, July 8th. There were designated stopping places on all the roads. The Jameses, under assumed names, were acquainted personally with a number of very respectable people along the route traveled by them, and therefore had no difficulty in obtaining comfortable quarters and receiving a hospitable welcome. And so of the others of that band, on mischief bent, they all had good quarters on Thursday night, and as only two traveled together on a road, no suspicion was aroused on account of their presence. The robbers came by pairs to the rendezvous. They had all assembled by four o'clock in the evening. Some of them went without their dinners that day. Here the whole band remained until sundown on the evening of the 8th. The place selected was at a deep cut known as Rocky Cut, about four miles east of Otterville in Pettis County, Missouri, on the line of the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Three of the band, Bob Younger, Clell Miller, and Charlie Pitts, were detailed to capture the watchman at the bridge. Bill Chadwell and Hobbs Carey, it appears, were assigned the duty of taking care of the horses. A dense piece of timberland adjacent to a field was selected as the place of concealment. The express train bound east was due at that spot about 11 o'clock at night. The robbers did not arrive at the designated rendezvous until some time after the curtains of night had been drawn over the scene. At a little after nine o'clock, Younger, Miller, and Pitts went down to the bridge and were hailed by the watchman. They were close upon him, and with drawn revolvers and fearful oaths, they commanded him to surrender. The helpless watchman could not do otherwise. They took him in charge and secured his signal lanterns. "'What are you going to do with me?' asked the astonished watchman. "'You keep still,' was the reply. "'But you ain't going to hurt me,' he inquired. "'What do we want to hurt you for? "'We want that money on the train. "'That's all we care for,' was the reply he received. "'The whole party walked up the track to the mouth of the cut. "'It was about half-past ten o'clock. "'A heap of rocks and a number of old cross-ties "'were piled across the rails.' Then the cunning brigand sat down quietly in the darkness to await the coming of the train. The horses of the robbers were about fifty yards away, ready to be bestridden and fresh enough to make a long journey, if that should be necessary. Crouched there, they were silent as the broken fragments of rocks which lay scattered around them. They had not long to wait. 
a distant rumbling was heard like the first low mutterings of thunder before the storm cloud appears then it grew louder and shriller like the raging wind it was the train the robbers were not asleep charlie pitts had been detailed to display the red lantern the danger signal as the train came thundering around the curve into the cut he performed his part of the program well precisely at the right spot the train came to a standstill the engineer had reversed his engine and put on the air brakes instantly the train was boarded by a number of masked men said to have been twelve at least all heavily armed guards were placed at each end of the cars and the leader boarded the express car compelled the messenger under threats of immediate death to open his safe and then the contents were emptied out into a sack and the car was thoroughly searched for valuable packages the result was about seventeen thousand dollars were secured and carried away for the use and behoof of the robbers the whole transaction was completed in less than an hour the passengers were greatly alarmed during the time of the detention the robbers stationed at the ends of the cars kept their revolvers bearing upon the passengers and would not allow them to stir a finger under threats of death every moment they expected their turn to be robbed would come but the robbers appeared to be satisfied with the amount realized from the plundering of the express car and when they had accomplished that job thoroughly they released the train sought their horses and rode away several shots were fired during the time the train was standing for the purpose of keeping the passengers in a state of alarm the news was telegraphed from the next station to st louis sedalia kansas city and other points by this event the whole country was thoroughly excited the detective forces of st louis kansas city chicago and even the cities of the atlantic seaboard were taken by surprise and aroused to make efforts to capture them the railroad and express companies offered large rewards and the governor of the state took measures to aid in the pursuit of the brigands meanwhile the men who had created all this furor of excitement rode through the darkness with their treasure bag when the first faint blush of dawn streaked the east the plunderers of the express car at rocky cut were twenty miles away and just turning off the main highway into the dim recesses of a large forest after traveling more than a mile into the woods the brigands came to an open space here they dismounted jesse james had the treasure bag during the journey frank james cole younger and charlie pitts had relieved each other alternately in carrying the precious burden now they had reached a safe place and the spoils of the adventure were about to be divided frank james acted as master of ceremonies on that occasion whether the divide was an equal one we are not advised and perhaps we shall never know the envelopes were torn from the express packages and the money divided into separate heaps one of which was given to each of the men who had participated in the exploit the ceremony of dividing the money having been gone through with and jesse james cole younger frank james and charlie pitts having parceled out the captured jewelry among themselves the robbers remounted and separated into pairs each pair selecting the route which pleased them best in the daytime they rode in the woods and along bypaths and in the night they returned to the highways and were soon secure from pursuit because they went at once among friends who if they were acquainted with the character of their guests never gave away anything an outrage of so daring a character 
was not slow in producing effects. The news had been flashed afar on the lightning's track. The chief of police of St. Louis, the marshals and constables and county sheriffs were aroused to unusual activity. The people everywhere were excited by an event of so sensational a character. A keen pursuit was inaugurated. Watchful eyes and open ears were in every town and hamlet throughout Missouri and even in adjacent states. This time, it appeared, the robbers would be surely compelled to remain hidden far from the habitations of man. But secure in their retreats, the shrewd leaders of the raid, Jesse and Frank James and Cole and Bob Younger and Charlie Pitts, laughed at the efforts of the officers of the law to capture them. They enjoyed reading the newspapers containing accounts of their daring feat and made merry of what they were pleased to term the stupid work of the damned detectives. The robbers had one thing on their minds which gave them some concern. The cub robber, Hobbs Carey, was scarcely shrewd enough to evade capture, and they feared not brave enough to withstand the pressure which they knew would be brought to bear upon him to make him squeal on his associates. What if Carey should fall into the hands of the hunters? And was it not extremely probable that he would? These were questions which they asked themselves, and in time they framed an answer in the form of another question. What if he does? We don't know the fellow? We have said the passengers and trainmen were passive witnesses of the proceedings of the robbers, but there was one person on the train who was not afraid to resist. That individual was the train newsboy, Johnny, as he was called, had a small pistol of a cheap grade with which to defend himself against all enemies and robbers in particular. Now the opportunity had come to display the latent heroism which he knew he possessed. Johnny did not believe in being plundered, and though his weapon was not very dangerous, he believed he could do some execution with it. At any rate, he would try. From the car window where he had taken a position, he opened fire on the marauders. His first shot was ineffective, and the bandits derisively encouraged him to try again when they discovered the youthful appearance and diminutive size of their assailant. Johnny took them at their word and blazed away again. The robbers were well satisfied and good-humored, and they laughed and jeered at the little hero who had exhibited so much courage. They told him he would do for a train robber himself when he was a little older. Johnny insisted for a time that he knew he had shot one of the robbers badly. Charlie Pitts, Bill Chadwell, and Hobbs Carey made a forced march to southwest Missouri. Late Saturday night, they forded Grand River. After going a little distance from the river, the three robbers dismounted, threw themselves on the ground, and slept soundly until morning. Here, Carey's horse, which was well broken down, was abandoned. The saddle he hid in the brush in the Grand River bottom. Carey, at this point, separated from Pitts and Chadwell, they remaining in the Grand River forests, while he proceeded to Montrose Station on the MK&T Railway. He had not long been there when a train bound south came along. He stepped on the car and went down to Fort Scott, Kansas. Finding a clothing store open, he purchased a good suit of clothes, which he donned at once. With valise in hand, he boldly entered a hotel, called for supper, which he partook of, and then proceeded on the train to Parsons, took lodgings there, where he remained until four o'clock next morning. From Venita, to which he went from Parsons, he proceeded to Granby, where he had a good old time with the boys. From Granby to Joplin, 
and from that place to Granby again, and then away down in the Indian Territory Hobbs Carey went, without remaining very long at one place. Wherever he went, he drank, and whenever he drank whiskey, he talked, and showed his money, and boasted. He was liberal with the boys, and had money for the faro dealer, and was for the time a hail fellow well met with all. But the eyes that were looking, and the ears that were listening, putting this and that together, by an act of cogitation, concluded that Hobbs Carey knew about the Rocky Cut business. It was not a mistake. The detectives pulled Carey, and when he had time to reflect, he unfolded his mind and told of his friends and their ride at night. He proved to be, quote, a good peacher, as the police say, and whatever may be the slight inconsistencies of his narrative of the Otterville affair, the events at Northfield, Minnesota, a few months later, confirm the truthfulness of Hobbs Carey's story in all the main particulars. Of course, the James boys and their friends were swift to denounce Hobbs Carey as a fraud, and his stories of the midnight ride and the flaring of the danger signal before the train as pure fabrications of a diseased or wicked brain. Meanwhile, the Jameses and Youngers had not gone far away. The former found friends and a safe retreat in the eastern part of Jackson County, and the latter retired to St. Clair County, where they rested in contentment for a season. The Jameses have friends yet in a certain neighborhood in that section of Jackson County, men and women, who despite their known character and the edict of outlawry against them, would receive them into their houses and treat them not only with ordinary hospitality, but with marked consideration. End of section 12.